that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of God, the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That particular refrain, which is only a portion of that text that was read earlier in our hearing this morning, reminding us of the exalted magnificence of Jesus the Christ and the church that He established, for it closes by noting in the next verse, "...unto Him who is exceeding abundantly, able to do above all that we ask or think, unto Him be glory in the, Christ, in, in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen." We understand that as Paul, in fact, was given by inspiration those words to say, he certainly wasn't struggling to find the right word. But it's almost as if the Holy Spirit reached the pinnacle of what you and I could understand in his effort to help us appreciate the glory, the magnitude, and the unbounded greatness of the church of Jesus Christ. As you and I approach a series of lessons entitled Glory in the Church, we also are attempting to remind ourselves of just how great that glory is and that day by day we may use it to always appreciate just how blessed we are to be members of the body of Christ. It is with that in mind that we come to the second installment in our series of lessons. You might recall some of these thoughts, in fact, on, from our lesson last week. In that, series, in that first lesson of the series, we were reminded of the fact that the world so often seems to feel that the church is irrelevant and that it's perhaps even immaterial. Some even view it as being obsolete, that it doesn't address the needs of the modern world. And oh, how mistaken those are who feel so. For we learn there's one body, there's one church. The Lord only purchased one of them. And it still stands today as the bulwark of faith and as the towering pinnacle of all that God would have the world to appreciate concerning the nature and character of His Son. And it's only in that body that salvation is to be found. Some of the other things we noted in the effort to identify that one body. Didn't we appreciate that there was something explicitly said about when it was established? And isn't it still true that that would be one of the identifying characteristics and marks for that church of which we read, purchased by the Savior, had its establishment, of course, as you and I learned last Lord's Day, on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And any religious organization that traces its origin to any date other than that one cannot possibly be the church that Jesus purchased and the one for which He died it is in light of that that today we'll consider another lesson, looking at some additional characteristics that help us identify the body and to know for certain that we are, in fact, appreciative of it and are members of it. As we continue onward in that particular study this morning, I thought we'd begin by perhaps using an analogy, using an example. I've tried to briefly highlight it near the top of that, but perhaps consider this with me. Let's just suppose that you were at the Nashville airport. We know the parking lot there is extensive. Hundreds and hundreds at any particular point of cars are parked in that parking lot. And just suppose I ask you to, in fact, go to one of them and to retrieve something out of it. At this point, you perhaps will be dumbfounded. How would you find the car that I have in mind? You begin by asking me questions. Suppose you ask me the particular make and I respond, it's a Honda. You now have learned something. 
that would eliminate all the Mercedes Benz, all the Fords, all the Chryslers and others. But now we know that there probably are dozens and dozens of Hondas in the lot. How would you now find which would be the next limiting characteristic? And so you ask me another question. What particular type of Honda is it? If I respond to CRV, now you can eliminate the Civics, the Accords, the Odysseys, and all the other Honda products. But still likely there probably are quite a few CRVs on the lot. You proceed to ask additional questions. What color is it? If I now respond silver, you can eliminate the brown ones, and yea, any other two-toned one besides simply the ones that are silver. By now, though, you likely have eliminated the vast number of all those. Still, there's probably a handful of silver Honda CRVs. If you were to ask me, what's the VIN number? Or perhaps the license plate number, now you're down to one vehicle and that alone. I might point out we are attempting to do the same thing with respect to the church. Because after all, if the New Testament affirms that there was but one purchased and there was but one established and there is but one that leads to heaven, then it's imperative that we not only be able to identify it, but that we can rest our eternal salvation in ultimate confidence that we have found it. And this is her. We're doing the same thing. We've learned in that earlier lesson. The time is one characteristic. And so any religious organization that doesn't trace its origin, its establishment to that first Pentecost listed in Acts chapter 2, following the resurrection of Jesus, it cannot be the church. May I submit to you, there are some additional marks, some other characteristics that you and I can employ. In fact, if you'll look on this particular slide, just as surely as last Lord's Day, we noted the question related to the when of the church's establishment. Today, let's ask, where was it established? And if indeed this too is explicitly affirmed in the holy pages of Scripture, then we have another identifying characteristic, another mark that can serve as a critical element in helping us to appreciate the glory that is in the church. Where was the church established? Is its place of origin important? The Old Testament was rather clear in making the prophecy that it would be the city of Jerusalem where the church would be established. In Zechariah chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 to list three particular places in which it was prophesied very clearly and very definitively that it would be in Jerusalem that the church would find its origin and that it would have its establishment. It is to be noted then that as those prophecies were in fact set forth, you and I now come to appreciate what was to be taking place and the way in which those prophecies had their fulfillment. You'll appreciate specifically Isaiah's passage in Isaiah chapter 2. The law would go forth from Jerusalem. This would be the beginning point, in fact, when individuals would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And this would be the location in which all nations would appreciate that the law would go forth from Jerusalem and the message of salvation would, in fact, be rung forth. In light of all of that, let us now give some thought to where the establishment took us and the fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament. 
I've asked you to notice some of the additional statements of the Old Testament. We recall that there were three major feasts that God commanded the Hebrews to keep. Those feasts, as we remember, described on more than one occasion, were the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Ingathering. And it was particularly stated with regard to all of them as to their fulfillment in terms of how the Jews were to keep them. With regard to Pentecost, I would specifically ask us to note this. In that passage, specifically in Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 15, God gave particular instruction as to when, as far as the location and, and the time, that that was to be kept. And He says that they were to begin counting from the Sabbath of the Passover week, and from that they were to count 50 days that you and I recognize to be seven full weeks and one more day. And so if one begins that count from the Sabbath, one would invariably have to finish that count on a Sunday, the day you and I would recognize as the first day of the week. And thus, as we come to see the fulfillments of some of these matters, we again notice now that we expect the fulfillment to occur on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, and sure enough, as we give thought to the where that the Jews were keeping this, God had specifically said in Deuteronomy 16 that they were to observe these feasts, and I quote, in the place which He shall choose. As Moses made that statement, the word He referred to God. God specified the place. He identified it, He located it, and therefore it was in the place that God had affirmed that this was to be kept. The Jews were meticulous about keeping it. And as we noticed through the years, it was in Jerusalem that they, of course, ultimately chose to keep that because that's where God said to do it. I would ask you to notice just a few of these passages in passing. All three of these feasts were celebrated in the same location. In 2 Kings 23, as well as 2 Chronicles 30, we have explicit, explicit reference to Jerusalem as the place where they were observed. Perhaps the one that most easily comes to mind is the last one I mentioned. In Luke the second chapter, after the birth of our Savior, at this time He was the age of twelve, and His parents took Him to Jerusalem to observe and to celebrate the Passover. Isn't it to be noted that it was Jerusalem as meticulously and faithfully kept through the years that those Jews in fact kept and celebrated it after they crucified our Savior in His appearances to those apostles after His resurrection? Did He not say to them in Luke 24 verse 49, "'Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high.'" We notice in Acts chapter 1, that they observed His ascension into glory. But after that, the text says they returned to Jerusalem. They followed the instructions of the Master. And as they returned to Jerusalem to wait, to tarry, to in fact appreciate the coming of power upon them, they were waiting in Jerusalem. It is with that in mind I would ask you to notice Then it was in Jerusalem that the events of Acts chapter 2 took place. It was there that when the Holy Spirit came upon those apostles and embodied them with the power to speak in other tongues, giving them the greatness of their knowledge of faith and their ability to speak correctly the matter of truth, 
that power came upon them in Jerusalem. Where was Peter and the other eleven when they proclaimed the message of the gospel that day? They were in Jerusalem. Where was it then that the church was established? It was in Jerusalem. Later we notice, particularly in verses 38 and on to the end of that chapter, that those apostles were in fact giving forth their effort in regard to the establishment and continuance of the church in that city you and I know of as Jerusalem. It would seem then that we've reached a point of conclusion, or at least a point of observation. And I've listed it there at the bottom. May I submit to you then that any religious organization that does not trace and cannot trace its origin to the city of Jerusalem on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus, that religious organization then cannot be the church. It is with that in mind I would ask these questions, and not as if I've selected arbitrarily these, but I've just chosen some. But might I ask you to notice, the Methodist church had its origin under the efforts of John Wesley in the decade of the 1730s in England. Now the last I checked, Jerusalem was not in England. In fact, the last I checked, London, in fact, any of the other particular cities, such as Lincolnshire, which is in fact the explicit place where the Methodist church began, might we take careful note, that is not Jerusalem. It was not then, nor is it now. Perhaps another observation. You might notice that organization known as the Mormon, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Question, where did it have its establishment? And where was the origin of that religious body, that religious organization? They will attest themselves. The year 1830 in New York City. The last I checked, New York City is not Jerusalem. It wasn't then, nor is it now. Isn't it thus interesting to notice by the very character of where and when these organizations had their origin, they eliminate themselves from being the precious body of our Savior. Perhaps finally, the Seventh-day Adventists, under the efforts of Ellen G. White and others who labored along with her, Battle Creek, Michigan, 1863. Now, Battle Creek, Michigan may be known for a lot of things, but it is not Jerusalem. It is then interesting that in light of these observations, what may you and I fairly conclude? If God's Word means anything, it means the church had its establishment and its origin in the city of Jerusalem. And any religious organization that began anywhere else, no matter the earnestness or honesty associated therewith, it cannot be the church for which our Savior died. In that way, we've seen then two identifying marks two identifying characteristics associated with the church of our Lord. One is when it was established, the other is where it was established. I've often thought that our youngsters in school, at least in English class, are frequently encouraged to make note in terms of various parts of speech, questions like when and where and how. We're asking the very same questions about the church. And we're finding that God's Word has supplied the answers. And thanks be unto God for those answers. And may we in earnestness appreciate the answers. Perhaps one more identifying characteristics that you and I may use today would be the relationship or association that this organization, the church, bears to the Son of God Himself. 
What relationship does the church have to Jesus? As we explore that over the latter part of our lesson time this morning, I think we'll be led to appreciate that again the Scriptures have affirmed and have stated that there is relationship and that it must be upheld and it must, in fact must be honored. May we begin that appreciation this way. May we begin by noting that there is a very fundamental and basic importance that attaches to the builder of a particular structure as well as the builder of an organization. The builder, in fact, is the one who determines the mission, determining the origin, determining the basic nature of why the organization was established. It is no less so with regard to this. The builder devises plans, makes arrangements, sets in order the basic reason and motivation for establishing the organization. As you give thought to matters like that, may we notice the builder of the church is clearly stated in the New Testament. I would point you, if you would, to Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. On that occasion, it was the Lord Himself speaking. He had come into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and on that occasion, He asked the apostles, the disciples on that occasion, Whom do men say that I am? They responded with a number of supposed answers that the crowds and the multitudes were asserting. Some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them the same question. And in directness He said, But whom say ye that I am? It was Peter who took the opportunity to respond. And He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus next spoke. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've already then seen from the lips of our Savior Himself, who was the builder of the church. He promised that He would be. Though that church wasn't in existence at that point, when that time came, He promised, He affirmed, He asserted, He guaranteed that He would be the builder. We thus can also see some of the thoughts that follow. Jesus, in fact, commissioned His apostles in that statement known as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, "...all power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth." Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Lord gave some rather dramatic marching orders. You go and you preach, not just any arbitrary doctrine, but what I have commanded you. The Lord thus dictated the plans, the arrangements, the doctrine all the final matters concerning that which this church was to be and to proclaim and to preach, He said it. Isn't He then the one that made the plans? Isn't He the one that made the arrangements? Isn't He the one that gave the directions and the instructions to those that would be its members as to what they would teach, preach, and how they would behave and act? That's exactly what He did. And as you can see in that passage in these that follow, that's the same message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up with boldness that day 
And he straightforwardly to a group gathered said, You with wicked hands put the Son of God to death. But the grave wasn't able to hold him. Up from the grave he arose, and by the power of God he was anointed as king over the kingdom, and over that kingdom he reigns. And as Peter closed the lesson, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. It is He who thus stands at the pinnacle and zenith of magnitude over this body, the church, Lord and Christ. He is Lord of all, Acts 10, verse 36. And inasmuch as He is Lord of all, it asks us and in fact causes us to ask this question today. Wasn't it stated in Hebrews 3, verses 4, 5, and 6? Every house has a builder. That's a self-evident truth. A house cannot build itself. This structure in which you and I now see it didn't build itself. Some man, some group of laborers and builders put it in place. And in Hebrews 3, 6, we learn this. Whose house are we, speaking of the church, if we remain faithful and steadfast unto the end? You and I are the house of Christ. You and I were thus built and founded by Him. Doesn't that lead us to ask this question? What about your life and mine this day? Are we following the plans and instructions that the builder has set forth? Or are we striving to build something else on some other foundation? There is no other foundation, of course. Isn't it true? We read in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That foundation then of your life and mine as Christians, the foundation of the church is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. He, in fact, is its builder. In Acts 20, verse 28, we notice that His blood purchased this church. To those Ephesian elders, Paul, in such dramatic fashion to them, said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood. Christ built it. He purchased it. We are gaining a rather deep impression, aren't we, that all that the church ever was or ever will be must surround the reality of the Christ. But let's look even further than that, for not only could He be affirmed as the builder, and not only could He be affirmed as the one who purchased it, we, of course, of course, appreciate that He built no denomination, meaning that He didn't build some arbitrary body. He built His body, purchased His body, that which is recognized as belonging to Him. I would ask you to notice one of the things here to which that leads us. Not only is Jesus the builder, He is the head of the church. So often affirmed in the writings of the Apostle Paul, wasn't it He that said in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, Jesus, in fact, is the head of the church. In Colossians 1, verse 18, perhaps a briefer passage that affirms the same, He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. All the preeminence thus belongs to the head, which is Christ. And here I've asked us to notice what the words actually mean. That word head means chief or supreme or prominent. Jesus must be viewed and looked upon absolutely as the prominent one in the church. 
you and I are less prominent than he. And so too is any other human individual. All the supremacy must rest and lie with him. That's interesting in as much as it leads us to note the meaning of that word preeminence. That word rather simply means the following, to hold the first place, to have the highest rank and dignity. Question, what then would that say about any religious organization that does not look upon Christ with the absolute highest of dignity and rank? That certainly would demand that we call into question the reality of that organization as being the church. And yet the fact is, in our world there are many who in fact fall in that sad category. The church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is the pillar and ground of the truth. The truth is what Christ, of course, set forth, John 16.13. Conclusion is in any religious organization that does not rest on the fullness and absolute entirety having the fullness of all of its creed in this, that body cannot be the church. Anything else, any kind of creed that's written by men, simply eliminates that, uh, that body as possibly being the church. You'll notice some of the last comments. Helps us see the unchangeability of that doctrine set forth by Jesus. Doesn't change with time. I think we noted in our prayer this morning, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. You see, that doctrine that Jesus has set forth will thus, if allowed to appreciate and lead to that which it will, it will make the same religious body today that it made in the year 60 A.D., 40 A.D., even 35 A.D., and so the church today must in fact be exactly the one described with favorably in the pages of the New Testament or else that church is not the church of our Lord. No wonder then we must look to this and to this only as the pattern. When we thus read about the approved character of, say, the church in Philippi, we know that we at the Pippin congregation must be like them in terms of their doctrine, that which they teach, that which they practice, that which they preach, that which they choose to live by. If we aren't like them, then we aren't approved for that church met the approval of the God of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 3, that church at Philadelphia that was so highly complimented by God, are we like them? Now, quite frankly, there were some congregations in the New Testament, like Corinth, that had their problems. We must appreciate the way in which they were rebuked and not thus be guilty of the same problems. We at Pippin, as well as any other body on earth today that wishes to be the church, must in fact follow the same pattern. For there is but one pattern. It has well been said, in terms of creeds, that the following statement is true. If a creed says more than the Holy Scriptures, then it says too much. If a creed says less than the Word of God, then it says too little. If a creed says something else besides the Word of God, then it says what is obviously not right. But if it says exactly the same thing as the Bible, then we don't need it. This is the one and the only pattern, the thing by which you and I proceed to find the identifying marks and the characteristics of the church. And one of the things is the relationship to Jesus. Do you and I proclaim Him as the head of the church? The head of the church doesn't reside in the Vatican in Italy. 
The head of the church doesn't preside over a conference in New York City. The head of the church does not authorize matters in Salt Lake City. The head of the church is forever enthroned at the right hand of the God of heaven, and it is there where he reigns in regal mastery even to this day. With all that in mind, we come near the bottom of appreciating that there are many things the human family has chosen to do to highlight one aspect of conferences and conventions that help to dictate and set the supposed doctrine of the church. Friend, if Christ set the doctrine of the church in His position as head and in His position as authority over it, then what right does any man anywhere at any time to alter or change or dictate the doctrine of the church? Man does not have that authority. God has not so delegated it. What then does that say about those who choose to meet for conventions and synods and conferences and come out with their directives and their decisions that certain things are allowed and certain things are not? Friend, they have not been given that jurisdiction. Though they may think that they have been, they have not. Today we look to this and this alone for the pattern of the church. In it we must find every vestige of its doctrine, Every element of its truth, if it's not found here, that it is not what God has revealed. It's no wonder that elderships are explicitly told in Titus chapter 1 to uphold sound doctrine so they can convince and close the mouths of the gainsayers. Elders need to then be men of the book, thoroughly acquainted with its teaching, and you and I as members must also be the same so that we can live lives pleasing unto God and be parts of that church, the one church, for which Christ shed His blood. The glory in the church is that to which we've turned our attention this morning. And as we draw that lesson to a close, may we summarize it like this. The Bible reveals where and when the church was established. And thus, we must be a part of the body that traces its origin to that place at that time. And not only that, the Bible speaks of the relationship Jesus has to the church. As we close the lesson, may we use Colossians 3.17. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now that passage reminds us of this one. Because in it, we notice the following. We should give thanks unto God, appreciating the fact that through Christ, He has made available to us all the measure of the fullness of grace. Today, Have you in your life touched the matter of that fullness? Have you obeyed the gospel? If you haven't, why do you delay? If you have arrived at that point in life that you know there's error and wrongness and sin in your life, and you know that Jesus died for you, and you know that the church is His body, and you know what the plan of salvation is, why not attend to that need in your life today? We'd be honored to assist you in your public obedience. In the final analysis, Jesus demands that you hear His Word, come to understand what's required of you, believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God, repent of the sins in your life, confess His name in the hearing of others that they too may appreciate the order and directive of your life, and then simply and humbly be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. If we could assist you in that today, why not today? If you've become a member of that body, this one body, the one that is in fact filled with all glory, but you have walked away from it, perhaps due to carelessness, perhaps due to indifference, 
perhaps just due to laziness or something else, you have allowed your life to be filled with disgraceful things that have long since severed your immediate association with salvation. Why not come back to that first love today? We would pray with you and for you. You need to realize that you must repent of those sins and confess them to God. As you and I pray, as we pray to God on behalf of that forgiveness, He has promised He will do that very thing. If today you need to respond publicly to the call of invitation in either of these ways, why not let it be today and why not let it be now, even while together we stand and while we sing?